Welcome to Neoweek Audio, a collection of podcasts and Twitter spaces produced and curated by Neoweek, the number one news and community platform for the Neo Protocol and the Aurora ecosystem. At neoweek.com slash podcasts, you can find every interesting audio piece from the community in one place. We curate content on topics such as DeFi, NFTs, gaming, DAOs, community hangouts, and more. Basically, we got you covered near fam. And without further ado, let's dig in. Hi, everybody. Can someone hear me? Please answer in the chat. Just Yeah, we can one. hear you now. Okay, all good. So I think Kate has some problems. Okay, so I think Kate has some problems, so I'll kick it, and um, Kate can join later on to like do the moderation and so on. So thanks a lot to all of you for being here today. Uh, looking forward to exchanging some cool information about high-integrity carbon credits with our speakers. Um, I'll let all our speakers introduce ourselves, and I'll introduce myself at the very end. So yeah, the folks from uh, Neutral and Flow Carbon, feel free to introduce yourself and we'll kick it from here. Great, can you hear me? Yes, all good. Awesome, I'll, I'll go first, Brooke, if that's all right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, my name's Isaac, I'm the head of carbon markets at Flow Carbon. My background is in both crypto and environmental commodities trading, so very much so a markets background. At Flow Carbon, we are exclusively focused on the voluntary carbon market. So we're a vertically integrated climate tech and carbon financial services company. Um, so what that means is we're active across carbon project finance, origination, sales, and trading. So we essentially cover the entire life cycle of a carbon credit. Um, and on the climate tech side, we're building structured finance and distribution products on decentralized blockchains with the goal to funnel all of this capital that's already in the Web3 ecosystem on chain, as we call it, towards high impact carbon projects. So we do all this uh, with the mission to scale the voluntary carbon market. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Uh, I can go next. So I'm uh, Faru. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Neutral, and we're an exchange for environmental assets. Um, particularly tokenized environmental assets, and that includes both renewable energy credits and carbon credits. And we, we essentially build out trading infrastructure on top of partners that tokenize and curate or create liquid instruments for these different assets. Awesome, perfect. And so on my side, so I'm Aurelien, co-founder and chief climate officer at Open Forest Protocol. And at Open Forest Protocol, we've basically built some infrastructure to issue fully data-backed, transparent, and digita digitally native carbon credits. So for the moment, we're focusing on afforestation, reforestation, but soon all the infrastructure that we've built will also be 
opened to be able to build other verticals like mangroves, biodiversity credits, uh, you name it. And so on our side, we focus on like extreme transparency, on inclusivity and scalability to enable the scale of like the VCM as uh, flow carbon and neutral are working on also. So for today, um, we'll be first digging into how we define a high integrity carbon credit and also what parameters are involved. So yeah, um, maybe Isaac, I'll let you start with this, like give your insights on high integrity carbon um, and we can take it from here. Sure, happy to start. Yeah, so the answer to that question, what is a high quality carbon credit is, uh, I would say it's not black and white. Uh, we view quality as a spectrum. It's really a, a combination of a variety of factors and those factors are different depending on the type of project we're evaluating. So they're different for like an industrial process project, a nature-based solution, an engineered solution, et cetera. Um, there are uh, a number of things that we look at regardless of the project type or the activity taking place. So I can talk through those at a really high level to get started. So those include things like financial additionality, uh, permanence, the risk of reversal, leakage, monitoring and re reporting and verification practices in place, environmental safeguards, social safeguards, policy risk, regulatory risk, the presence of co-benefits like benefits to communities and biodiversity, um, and very importantly, the backgrounds of the project proponents, the ownership structure of the project, and the flow of money. Um, so that's a lot of stuff. I think if we want to maybe just boil that down into like what we look at first when it comes to quality. Um, one is additionality. Um, so that means the project wouldn't otherwise be economically viable without the presence of carbon revenues. And that's important because we want to direct carbon revenues to the projects that need it. Otherwise, like what's the point of the market? And two is, is accurate MRV and carbon accounting. So we need to know how much carbon was actually removed as a result of the project activities over the project lifetime. So if, and I focus on those two things because if a project is an additional or it's inflating their numbers, the project and the carbon credits are inherently flawed. And even before like moving on to all of the other criteria that kind of equate to a high quality credit um, without additionality and, and MRV and carbon accounting in place, like the project doesn't really have a chance of being deemed high quality. Um, that being said, I, I just really want to emphasize how quality is a spectrum. Um, it's not black and white. And while a lot of the analysis we do when evaluating a project is uh, fairly objective, it's, there's also a lot of uh, subjective analysis as well. And different market participants have different views on it. So I'll, I'll pause there and happy to dive into any specific points. Yeah, thanks a lot, Isaac. Uh, Farouk, do you have any insights on your side that you'd like to deep dive in? No, I mean, I, I think Isaac covered it pretty well. Usually the framework for determining quality is looking across those categories that Isaac mentioned, like additionality, permanence, carbon accounting. And then people look at co-benefits as sort of like an added, um, an added uh, quality uh, characteristic. But... Yeah, I think diving into those and how we can improve 
um, assessments across that framework, I think, is, is really the, the interesting part. Yeah, definitely. So maybe we could link this to why we're using on our side also blockchain to increase the integrity of carbon credits. Um, I can maybe give a few insights here on our side, and you can also deep dive further. So I think the the blockchain infrastructure that we have right now is super is super important and is super useful because basically the immutability of blockchain, the transparency, the fact that everything is publicly accessible definitely increases the quality of the credits. So right now we're able to typically store all the data that's collected on the ground with the MRV solutions on the blockchain. All this data is visible to the public. People that are interested in the projects can check out where the credits come from, what's the project information behind, and really deep dive at a level that was really not possible um, previously because you had to deep dives in PDF reports instead. And I think also to increase the quality Blockchain is essential with the, the fact that there's no double counting that's possible. Typically, when a carbon credit is issued on chain, uh, you cannot issue two carbon credits or you cannot retire two, the same two carbon credits. So once it's retired, it's retired forever. It's stored on chain. You can see it. Um, and that's also definitely increasing um, the quality of the credits in the market. Yeah, and I, I think like... Uh, so. When we do quality assessments, we don't do that internally. We rely on third-party, primarily ratings agencies. And something that we struggle with is if we want a project reviewed, um, it often takes a very long time to get the required data to review a given project. And I think in, in like the context of uh, quality assessments, having that data on-chain um, allows you to conduct those reviews a lot faster. It's not that they're impossible off-chain because you can still access that data. It's just how readily accessible is that data and how transparent is it? Um, I think that, that to me, in the context of quality assessment is, a, is the big value add. Yeah, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll add on to that really quickly. Um, I would agree. It is possible to diligence a project today, but it's really, really difficult and like really inconvenient. And it's not conducive to a market that's scalable. So a lot of like corporate buyers and users of the products, they have these really robust diligence processes. Like Fruit said, it's a lot of it's done by third parties, um, which, which we also leverage at Flow Carbon. But with that data on chain, on the blockchain, more easily digestible, more trustworthy, that allows for a smoother diligence process, a more transparent diligence process. And it ultimately gets buyers and investors in carbon offsets um, just more comfortable with a purchase or investment or retirement. Um, and that's just critical to the growth of the market. Yeah, totally. And I think also like by incentivizing people to being transparent, more transparent to showing that all the data is available, you also definitely increase the quality. So right now we've seen like some issues with the voluntary carbon markets of over issuance and so on with more transparency uh, more incentivized quality uh, will this will definitely lead to higher quality also carbon credits in the future um, perfect so maybe we can go down to another type of information from you all so how do you really work with high integrity carbon credits uh, in your organization and also like what's really the ultimate vision um, 
for a world of high integrity carbon um, credits or markets um, at at flow and at uh, at neutral also. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I can start. So yeah, again, flow carbon is vertically integrated. So what that means is we, we're working with high integrity carbon credits from even before their inception to their end use, sometimes even after their end use, if there's MRV after the retirement. Um, so we help project developers get their projects to market. We help them get their offsets to issuance and ultimately to sale and again, retirement. I think our vision is to form a proper financial market for high integrity offsets. So we envision institutional capital getting involved in the financing of these projects. We envision, you know, every Fortune 500 company entering into long-term offtakes to meet their sustainability goals, not just the Microsofts of the world. Um, and we, we even envision a world where like every offset is high integrity. Um, I think that is the ultimate vision and that's where the market is, that's the direction the market is trending right now. Um, and the tricky thing is, is that all, all of those things kind of have to happen in tandem without high integrity credits and projects. It's really hard to get robust long-term offtakes. Without offtakes, it's really hard to get uh, project financing and vice versa. So it, it's a kind of the definition of like a, a chicken and egg problem. So our view is we have to do everything in tandem, but it, it's safe to say that nothing is going to scale, which is again, our goal as a company without that underlying asset being robust, high quality, uh, reputable, et cetera. Yeah, those are, those are great points. I mean, in, in the context of neutral, what we think about a lot is how do you embed quality assurance into trading instruments that can be efficiently and easily accessed? And I think that's something that is definitely has been a drag on the market. Because if you think of um, like, what is the time required today to acquire a high quality project? It's, it's a really long timeline. Right? We're, we're talking weeks to months of due diligence. And then after that, OTC acquisition. So when we think about like what is required and, and that process and those timelines just are, are not going to lead to a scalable market. So when we think about quality assurance and efficiency of trade, we always think about how do you embed um, quality assurance into trading instruments such that someone can interact with one very quickly and know that the underlying assets that they're interacting with are of high quality. And then it becomes a question of um, what party is determining that quality and how, like, who are you relying on for that assessment and that quality assurance within a trading instrument? Um, or like what data points are you relying on? And I think that that's really the, the tough problem to crack. Um, if you want a scalable market that has um, that, that is of integrity. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, maybe I can give you some insights from our vision, like long-term vision at OFP and what we envision also. And it's pretty linked and pretty similar to flow and neutrals vision. Um, for us, we definitely need a more liquid and efficient market. Uh, the existing market ha is really siloed, um, not really efficient. So streamlining the processes, as you were saying, from the pre-financing, financing, um, creation, registration of the project, um, and even like the management of the project also until the issuance of the credits. 
So there are a lot of things where we can also reduce the huge amount of costs that arise um, in these projects for the moment. Um, we can definitely remove a few barriers to entry. Um, and I think we'll also get to high quality, high integrity projects uh, by including smaller scale uh, project developers. Because right now, most of the carbon projects are massive projects um, requiring a huge investment, upfront investment. Um, and if we include smaller scale projects, they're faster to develop. Um, of course, the diligence remains the same in terms of quality, but the amount of investment is lower. Um, and I think this will also lead to more scalability, um, more quality, more diversity in the projects. And if we improve our system with transparency, blockchain will increase truth that comes up from the project, trust, and we'll get more engagement from the VCM. And so all this leads to, yeah, more, <laughs> more purchases, more supports, more funding uh, towards climate um, solutions. Um, and yeah, we have, we have a lot to do in the future to make this market a very like successful market. Um, that can support climate change solutions, basically, in general. Yeah, I think the, the, the one difficult part with small projects is that, um, like, the you see some reluctance for, like, third parties to pay for quality assessments on small projects because the, the credits that that assessment is covering is fairly small. And I mean, we, we, um, so it seems like the, the smaller you make a project, the more accessible you want that information to be and the more readily, um, like interpretable you want it to be so that you can conduct quality assessments easily. Something we run into is, um, I mean, every quality assessment we conduct costs money. We have to, we have to pay for that. And we often will choose medium to large projects because it allows us to access more credits for that payment. Um, so for small projects, I, I generally agree with the, the direction of what you like the direction that they are required for a scalable market and their value. But um, the smaller you make them, the more easily interpretable and accessible the information required to conduct quality assurance has to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. Um... I think it, it relates to what I was saying earlier about how we look at, like, the, especially for a nature-based project, we'll look at the land holding structure and, and the money flows. And there's definitely a, a stronger and stronger preference towards community-owned projects or small landholders hold, versus like a, a large corporate landholder who's running the project. And there definitely are economies to scale for those larger projects because audits are expensive, at least in the kind of traditional registries. Third-party ratings are expensive as well, but um, I would agree with you on that. We should, and and we we need to approach it from more of a decentralized um, scope, where we can, um, you know, bring these community-owned projects and smallholder projects to market, and not just rely on these these large corporate landholders who can do these like massive one-off projects. Yeah, I mean the the, the irony of that is like the the cost for quality assurance relative to the number of credits that they cover may be lower for large projects, but in most instances, not in most instances, in more instances than uh, relative to smaller projects, they're not additional. So you, <laughs> you actually end up um, 
like it, I think it's unclear whether the like cost of quality assurance, the credits covered even makes sense. Cause a lot of times when we're doing, we definitely see that like there's a relationship between the scale of a project and how uh, additional it is or, or not. And oftentimes the larger, the less additional. Yeah, I think it's a right, good point now. And we can definitely like deep dive into how high integrity carbon credits can really create uh, valuable real world assets. And like you've kind of introduced the fact that local communities or can access also in the future, potentially the carbon markets. So if we deep dive a little more in, into how we can really create real valuable world assets, basically with these high integrity carbon credits, then we can give some insights on, yeah, what are these tangible or intangible real world assets that we're creating with these high integrity carbon credits? And I can start if you want with a with a few ideas. Um, so, and then you can pick it pick from a from from my points. So I think first of all, like, and if I'll I'll focus mostly on like nature based solutions because this is um, OFP's core for the moment um, part of projects. And there's definitely first the land and ecosystem. So when you when you build a, a carbon project, you're, built, you're basically restoring land or growing a forest or conserving a forest, uh, growing a biodiverse natural habitat. And this is typically like a really valuable real world asset um, that is directly linked to these high integrity carbon credits. Um, there's also all the physical infrastructure that is linked to the projects. You have, for instance, tree nurseries that you need to um, to build up some projects also have schools um, or like other infrastructure training centers for instance that they built that are really like physical assets that you see in the real world um, and then you have all these like kind of intangible assets that come with high integrity carbon uh, projects like such as social um, yeah social social assets with increased incomes typically if you if you have some kind of income and you're able to also taking into account like local communities, uh, grow a carbon project on, I don't know, 10 hectare, 100 hectare, because you have community land or even more hectares, potentially you're increasing your income by 30% or more. And this is like crucial in some of the countries um, in the world, especially in the global south. You're definitely creating new jobs like if you take an example, I don't know, of a 300 um, hectare project, you would be creating about 30 jobs or even more between the people that are planting the, the trees, the people that are maintaining the forest, the people that are monitoring the forest and managing the entire project as a whole. So it's also cool to, to really see what's the impact of these carbon credits um, on our real world um, and how they're definitely linked. And then you have also assets on the, I would say, the buyer side and the brand side, so the, the corporates that are buying the offsets. So you have more and more like customers that want corporates and companies to have some kind of environmental or social action. And so by yeah, purchasing these high integrity carbon credits, you're basically showing your support towards environmental social action. And you have measurable assets um, and you can potentially also increase like, your customer loyalty. And this will, over time evolve, you ha we have so many like 500 
companies that are doing climate um, and net zero pledges. Um, so yeah, these are examples of like real world assets uh, that are typically linked with carbon credits. Uh, I don't know, Isaac or Farouk, if you have any additional <laughs> insights. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely speak to that because we work with projects um, similar to you, kind of like at their inception. And a lot of these project owners are, are small businesses. Um, and coming back to the point on additionality, these small businesses are dependent on carbon revenues. So they, w- without carbon offset revenues or maybe the financing up front in exchange for carbon offset revenues in the future, these small businesses will go out of business. Um, that's, that's not just specific for nature-based projects. Um, our, my experience on that level is more actually on the engineered side. For example, biochar projects. In the case of biochar projects, they're often similar to nature-based, located in like rural communities. Um, again, small companies employing folks in a small town. And without the presence of the carbon market, that company is shutting down and uh, people are getting laid off. And carbon isn't being removed. So um, that's kind of the definition of additionality, that these companies need carbon offset revenues to exist, not only to remove carbon, but also to employ the people that are doing the work on the ground. Um, And then, like you said, in the case of nature-based projects, there's all these uh, additional factors, such as like biodiversity, which isn't really the case for the kind of more technical projects that we work on. But um, yeah, there's there's huge importance beyond just the carbon removal or avoidance that's that's taking place. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, um, I think uh, one of the, the problems or one of the things I think about a lot is how do you balance those two things or how much do you want to prioritize like non-carbon aspects of a project? Um, and I, I think that that question is still an open one and something that I think through actively. Because, um, I mean, sometimes you see projects that are really strong on the co-benefits, but maybe not strong on the carbon component. And then it's always a question of, well, um, they may be helping the community a lot, but they're not doing their primary like purpose, which is to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And then how do you value those kinds of credits? I think generally, it, it seems to me that like the more non-carbon aspects you wrap into a carbon credit, the more difficult it becomes to assess quality um, just because you have more metrics for that assessment. I and mean, that, that assessment becomes a little more convoluted. So that, that's something I think about a lot. I think it's a really tough question of like what should be in carbon markets, what should and what should we prioritize um, and how do we prioritize it relative to the core function of carbon markets, which is to remove carbon. I think that that's really a difficult question. Yeah, yeah I would agree. It's uh, that that kind of speaks to the the standardization of the market, right? Um, the the carbon aspect of a project is very objective. It's very quantifiable. Um, everything else is super subjective and very qualitative, and it's hard to to put that into a number. And that's why we see like different carbon projects. Maybe one carbon project's removing 100,000 tons and they're employing five people. Another project's uh, removing 100,000 tons and they're employing 50 people, just as a random example. How do you convert those kind of metrics into like a price per carbon offset? Um, I don't think we've figured it out, but 
it's something that if we did figure it out, it would, it would, it would help standardize the market, help liquidity and help scale. Yeah, definitely. And also probably increase also the price for these projects that have more, more co-benefits. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Super cool. Um, I think we can deep dive now into how crypto and blockchain can, yeah, have some impact on the climate. Um, it's a more broader question, but basically why we're all here. Um, OFP, neutral and flow are all based on blockchain infrastructure. And I think it's, it's quite cool to explain why we've, why we did this choice and what we see Like, what are the advantages? What can blockchain provide to the climate community? Farouk, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, I can talk about this in the context of carbon markets. Um, so, I mean, generally, carbon markets are, are markets that are built on trust. So, when you're issuing a credit in the case of like OFP, It's like trust that are the trees that you planted within this given area surviving? Are they growing at the rate that uh, makes sense for the carbon accounting that you're conducting? Um, and is this an additional project? So they, there's, there's trust at the issuance, at the level of trade post-issuance. You're trusting that if you're interacting with an instrument or with a broker, that the assets that are being sold to you or that you're interacting with are of high quality. And then finally, when you have an offsetting entity that wants to retire a credit, it's trust that they're retiring credits that actually um, remove carbon from the atmosphere. So across the entire value chain, before issuance of a credit all the way to the retirement, you have a market and a system that is based on and requires trust. So then it becomes a, a question of what kind of infrastructure should you build a market on that requires that kind of trust across the entire value chain. And when you frame the question in that way, it becomes quite clear that we should be building this infrastructure on blockchains that are transparent and traceable and allows us to um, like trace the data that was used to issue a credit all the way to the entity that retired it. And being able to do that is going to be essential for introducing integrity into this market. Um, so that's why we chose primarily in carbon markets to, to work on blockchains. I mean, we, we also have a broader thesis that like financial markets and trade are, are going to move on to blockchains. But there's a more specific thesis on why it makes so much sense for environmental markets. Cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, the whole aspects around trust, transparency, ease of transaction, liquidity, etc., are great points. Um, I think may maybe an overlooked or underrated aspect of building these markets on chain, um, in my view, is that it taps into all of this capital that's already there. Like, I, I don't know how much capital is off. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's hundreds of billions of dollars the market cap of the voluntary carbon market is like a few billion dollars. So what's really exciting to me is that building these markets on chain democratizes access to the voluntary carbon market. Um, it allows 
retail to get involved and uh, buy and retire carbon offsets. It allows investors to get involved and, and maybe they have a mandate in their fund already to deploy their on-chain capital towards um, real-world assets. And we can help allocate that capital towards impactful carbon projects. So I, I just think it's really cool that there's this massive amount of money that is kind of just sitting there. Um, and if we can just attract a just small fraction of it to the voluntary carbon market, we're like 100xing the market cap of, of the market in today's terms, at least. Yeah, well, one more thing I'll, I'll add, which is um, a little more specific to like improving the efficiency of trade is that like w one of the unsolved problems in carbon markets is creating a liquid instrument that the markets actually want to use. Um, so that's like, there've been a few attempts to do this. There was the geo NGO contracts with expansive. There was the on-chain attempts to do this. And most of them had initial success and then kind of tampered out due to just some incentive mechanisms and um, arbitrage opportunities that led to the degradation of the underlying assets. And I think a really interesting opportunity is experimenting and trying out new approaches to the creation of liquid instruments that make sense and are tailored for carbon markets. And if you look at just general on-chain activity, you see these cycles of creative destruction where you get robust financial markets through experimentation. And I think applying that approach to carbon markets and the unsolved problem of liquidity could be really interesting. Yeah, definitely, Farouk. Um, totally agree. Maybe also, um, from my side, I think we're super lucky to be able to have some new technology um, that is available for us to innovate because we've got remote sensing, we've got blockchain, and this is also a way to have like a blank sheet and just be able to kind of reinvent how capital can flow to climate projects and how we can more transparently and more openly measure impact. And so this will also help scale the supply um, of carbon credits in the future. And honestly, right now, like the, the, the market is expected to reach like 10 billion to 40 billion by 2030. Um, and we don't have enough supply with the existing systems. So we need to increase the capital flow flows to climate projects if we want to face the demand and be able to like answer to this demand. And so I think like blockchain has this capacity with its transparency, with its immutability and so on, and with all the ad other advantages of having um, native digital assets on chain, um, of being able to scale the supply and match the demand um, for future offsetting or trading of these assets in the future. Yeah, I would agree. I'll, I'll comment on the demand um, aspects. I think it's, it's critical to increase high quality supply. It's also critical to increase demand and make sure there, there's actual buy-in. And I think in order to do that, we need end users and big corporate emitters to get on board we need policy and legislation to get on board. Um, and I think it's safe to say in order, in order to do that, we need to eliminate the perceived risks of using carbon offsets as part of a company's broader sustainability diet. Regardless of a company's intentions and how good they might be, their use of carbon offsets as part of 
their sustainability goals cannot put them at risk of greenwashing accusations. They can't result in bad press and potentially damage their reputations. And I think how we solve for that is, is an area where blockchain plays a huge role um, in that it's addressing the transparency, quality, and integrity question. Yeah, totally. And I think maybe also a little teaser, um, talking about blockchain and the adoption of blockchain for carbon credits. Like, I don't know if you know it, but Bhutan has already integrated its carbon registry on a blockchain. So using a World Bank-backed um, system. So people and countries are even moving like fast towards issuing credits or registering credits on blockchain. So this adoption is just going, it's just starting and it will just grow over time also. Okay, cool. So I think we have 15 minutes left. Um, maybe we can open to any questions that the audience may have. Feel free to raise your hand. Uh, and I can activate you as a speaker. Do you have any questions for Farrako Isaac? Or Isaac and Farouk, you can also like add any comments that you may have or any insights that you would still want to share with everybody. Um, if there if there are no questions, I have uh, maybe a parting message I'd definitely like to share. Um, yeah, I guess a lot of folks on this Twitter spaces are curious in the carbon markets and maybe active in the crypto markets already. I would just highly uh, advocate for like getting involved in the space. If you're a company, start to understand your environmental impact and start to do something about it. If you've got some investment capital laying around, explore how you can maybe deploy that in the ecosystem and earn a return while supporting a carbon project. If you're not sure what to do with your career, like go work at a climate company, apply your crypto knowledge to the space. It's a really fun, exciting industry to be a part of. And uh, I strongly believe that we need more top talent in the space. So my message would just be to get busy, learn work, get involved in the space. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. Yeah, thanks, Isaac. And this space is also very collaborative, which is super cool because we're all working towards a common goal. And the crypto space or the blockchain space is very open and collaborative. So it's, it's a really good space to be in, climate and blockchain. 100%, yeah. So I think we have a few questions. Um, maybe human, you can go first if you want. All right, yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, thank you so much for doing this space. It's really, really good to to have a space with um, Flow Carbon and Open Forest Protocol. As you said, it's honestly, it's um, sometimes it's astonishing how collaborative it can be. But obviously, that's the potential of. of the, um, what I wanted to ask, not really knowing that much about the carbon market is about um, making it more making carbon credits making more accessible essentially because i don't know how much of this is like true or is current but what i've heard at least is to go anywhere near 
a um, carbon credit that's um, verified with a Vero standard or the gold standard, or maybe those are the same. I don't know. Um, it's like at least $100,000. And so my question would be, um, what do you think, or maybe have there been um, more Web3 native MRV things that lead to the same um, verification standard that's also like, compliant with regulation when um, when people want to buy carbon credits? I guess that may apply more to the, not to the voluntary carbon market. Um, but yeah, how accessible can it be to get to the same standards for people to issue um, carbon credits on the on the same level with smaller projects? Have you have you seen any like what is actually the case? Because I know that there are many ideas, but yeah. Yeah, so maybe I can take this one um, for the issuance of credits for, for the smaller size projects. So this is definitely something that um, Open Force Protocol OFP is enabling um, in the future. So we work with smaller scale, but also larger scale projects. So it can be 110 hectares, thousands of hectares. Um, and these like below thousand hectare projects are normally not able to access the carbon markets. Um, the voluntary carbon market, uh, just because of all the, the huge upfront costs that you have to have to develop a project. So there will definitely be um, more opportunities for individuals and corporates to buy carbon credits or retire carbon cr credits on-chain um, with typically open forest protocol, but also probably with neutral. Uh, Farouk, you can maybe talk for um, neutral here. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the assets that we list and that we work with um, are, are coming from partner organizations, but we, um, like coming from Flow Carbon or, or others, um, but we generally, I think you're, you're touching on accessibility. I mean, we're, we're an exchange, so we're primarily institutional focus. There are certainly avenues for accessing um, carbon markets at smaller scales than like 100k order sizes um, I mean that, that's one of the value propositions of of tokenization is increased accessibility it's just not one of the value props that we as neutral focus on but it's certainly something that's um, that's useful for the market Yeah, definitely. And there are other also um, organizations that are doing like where you have marketplaces, where as an individual, you could purchase carbon offsets, uh, on-chain carbon offsets also. What would you say is currently um, a price that someone who's, who's doing on-the-ground work with a smaller scale project um, needs to pay to get to the same um, carbon credit verification that otherwise might take um, 100k minimum to get it verified? and to sell it as a carbon credit. What would you say is currently a price to, to get there, maybe using other MRV solutions? It's a good question. Um, it really depends on the standard and the MRV solutions that you're using. Um, if I just speak for Open Forest Protocol, um, we have no upfront costs for the MRV. So we truly believe that we need to remove these huge upfront costs for projects to enable more scale. Um, and so typically, like smaller scale projects wouldn't have a lot to pay upfront, would have nothing basically to use our system. We would only take a percentage of the carbon credits at the very end. Um, and this is also what blockchain enables. 
because typically the projects don't pay for validation um, or with cash and huge amounts, uh, but they pay the validation once they issue credits, once they receive value, a portion of this value is sent back also to the validators. So I think in the existing system uh, where only large projects can access carbon financing, it's not viable as a small project um, to register its project. What you would have to do is basically combine multiple land plots to have a project that reaches at least like 1,000 hectares. Uh, But without a system such as ours and maybe even others in the future, um, a small project would become viable um, by using like systems like us that remove a lot of the upfront costs. And would that result in a carbon credit to the same standard that's attractive to the same buyer as a verified carbon credit? Well, this we'll have to see with the with the buyers. But for the moment, what we've seen on our side is the that we have because of the transparency that blockchain brings and so on, and the the eligibility criteria that we've set for our projects. Uh, we're onboarding more high quality carbon projects than just typical like monoculture projects. Typically, if I talk about forests, um, so the prices that we are expecting um, are higher than the ones that are sold on Vera. And we've had, we've onboarded also projects that have been using Vera standards that have been using ACORN, which is a standard by Rabobank, which is more transparent than Vera. And these projects were getting higher prices, three times the price than they were selling on Vera. So Vera is a good standard. Um, It's a good standard for, especially for volume, but you do have other standards that are more transparent, that are a little different, that have different eligibility criteria, different methodologies, but very similar methodologies where you, where you are able to sell at a higher price. So it really depends on like, I think, honestly, the transparency of your project uh, is a big part also of the price that you will, you will be able to get um, for your credits. And of course, also all the other that we were mentioning, co-benefits that are harder to evaluate um, in the price, but that people who will evaluate the projects or who read the descriptions are able also to evaluate and, and, um, and assess. I'll uh, chime in here and plug Flow Carbon for a second. If anyone is going to uh, Denver during East Denver, definitely apply for our summit. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, this exact conversation. Um, accessibility to the market, tokenization of offsets, um, structured finance project products on chain that anyone can access. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's on February 28th, I believe, at the, the Denver Art Museum. Yeah, don't miss this one. Perfect. Maybe we can just go to also Ryan, who had a question. Ryan Christopherson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my question was actually very much similar to maybe human. And uh, I can I, I maybe add a follow up question to that. Um, but yeah, first off, very grateful for hosting the space and um, having you guys talk through these um, updates. And uh, yeah, uh, my, my interest is viability and accessibility for small scale projects. Um, but uh, having that already been kind of talked about, I guess, one of the things that came up for me was um, the use of machine learning and satellite imagery, because as far as I'm aware, Open Forest Protocol is still 
requiring on the ground efforts to measure the trees, take photos um, and track them in that sense. And um, I'm kind of wondering too, like, is there tools that are available and accessible to people that want to uh, understand a baseline measurement for their project to determine whether they're viable before they start adding additional costs to um, the actual MRV process? And um, are you guys looking into uh, the use of machine learning or, um, or uh, satellite imagery in any sense that would help um, with the accessibility for smaller scale projects? Yeah, definitely. So on point question, um, regarding the ground data collection, uh, so we have some exper experience and expertise in like working with uh, reforestation projects all over the world. Um, and it's a like common conception that you really need people on the ground to make a project successful. So we do require this ground data to be able to have people that are like surrounding the project, being employed by the project, and so on. And this will ensure the successful um, outcome of the project over the long term. If you just rely on remote sensing, it's very difficult to keep communities involved and to make sure that the project or the project area is not cut down, for example, in the future. So ground data is essential. It's the first part of our MRV. Uh, but of course, we're integrating uh, remote sensing images. We have a long-term partnership strategic partnership also with Canop um, to be able to integrate our ground data with their AIML um, remote sensing estimates of carbon stocks. Uh, but it, for this, it's super also important to calibrate the, um, the remote sensing models. And oftentimes, like at a smaller scale, the models can be off. So you need this ground data to be able to calibrate the models. And so this is how we will be also able to provide all the ground data that is collected by the project to improve the remote sensing models. And so what we envision is the future is that probably we'll remove a little bit the sample plots or lower the work that needs to be done on the ground, but we will always keep some kind of ground data collection to make sure that people are involved in the project area. Um, and then remote sensing will be here to lower the amount of work, uh, but we will only make sure do this when we're sure that the remote sensing models are well calibrated because otherwise you get results that are completely off. So that's, yeah, that's for your first uh, question. And then in, for the baseline measurements um, and not uh, involving a lot of cost upfront if you're not eligible. So the way we work with this is that uh, you can register your project on OFP. So it's basically just uh, your project area and answering some questions. So it's not a lot of work. It's some work, of course, but it's not tremendous. And then you get an assessment and a result from us saying, yes, you can be onboarded or no, you cannot. And so we have some evaluations that are done, a risk assessment and so on based on your responses. And we can give you um, basically a, a yes or no. And so you wouldn't be going into the monitoring specifically. You wouldn't be spending money into hiring people um, because you would have to be basically whitelisted before I just yeah, uh, I... want to jump in here. Um, I have to hop to another call, but I just wanted to say thanks a lot for hosting the space. Had a great time and hope everyone has a good day. Thanks a lot, Farouk, for everything and for being yeah. here with us. Bye, everyone. Bye.
So we just had uh, maybe uh, a last question um, from Mich, uh, from uh, Ed Bourgeois or Misha. Oh, Misha, we went through. No, oh, Misha, Misha, or, yeah, Misha first, if you want. Sure, can you guys hear me? Yes, all good. Great, greetings from Kenya. Uh, I'm the co-founder of Iroko Analytics and I have a great use case for you guys. Uh, we have developed or in the process of developing a, an ARR project in Southeast Cameroon, uh, 5,000 hectares of severely degraded tropical land. Uh, and you know, we're, we've kind of scoped everything out. We've got a basket of 15 native species that we're gonna be planting. We've done FPIC with the 65 communities within the communal forests. Uh, we've got, you know, every, all the ducks are kind of lined up in a row. Uh, and, you know, what would be the concrete steps that I would need to take to survive the valley of death? Uh, so, you know, from, uh, you know, like we kind of finished the conceptualization of the project. Um, you know, we've got the people on the ground. We're basically ready to plant. We just need project finance. Uh, so, you know, I've been following a lot of the kind of discussion around, uh, you know, blockchain and stuff like that. But what are the concrete steps that I can take now to move towards uh, project financing? Yes, it's a very good question. Just maybe, um, I don't know, Isaac, if you have another meeting, uh, I can take Misha's question if you want. And I just want to, like, thank you a lot for being here. Uh, you can, of course, stay, but I just wanted to, yeah, thank you if, you're, if you have to go. Yeah. I do have to go, but thank you so much for having me. Um, great questions, everyone. And yeah, have a good day. Thanks a lot, Isaac. See you soon. Bye-bye. Cool. Yeah. So Misha, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's a question that we get a lot because we have a lot of projects that are ready to be developed, but they lack the, the financing. So on our side, we try to do our very best and match you with any like funders that we know about. We're starting to kind of have this database of projects that are looking for funding and funders that are looking for projects, but it's not like our main uh, jobs job, but we've seen that there's really some uh, gap here, as you say. Um, so we can help in a way, but we're not like 100% focused on bridging this gap for the moment. Uh, what we have in plan and that will solve your problem here is what we call the pre-financing mechanism. Um, it's not yet developed, but it's something that we would want to, to put in place because we've definitely identified that uh, financing mechanism and pre-financing for projects is essential. So basically, this could be something that you would be using in the future um, and you could get some pre-financing for your project and the financing would, would unlock progressively with the successful reach of milestones that you've set and so on. So... Yeah, it's not available yet. It's something that needs to be developed. Um, there are also other pre-financing initiatives or financing initiatives. Um, we can put you in touch with what we know. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's still definitely a gap for the financing part. Great, thanks. I'll, I'll pick it up offline with you. Okay, Thank you. yeah, perfect. And I think uh, we can maybe wrap up after Ed's question. Yeah, thank you. I come from the regenerative ag movement, and we've been working on a regenerative verified and certified. Um, I put down in the purple pill um, a link to a group that's working on this 
um, because regenerative agriculture is really catching on around the world. I'm in the U.S. We're expecting to have 100 million acres by the end of the year in transition. The carbon credit market hasn't really worked for farmers um, anywhere. So the adaptation has been pretty limited. But this is a real simple using a soil test that's been custom designed to really understand the function of the soil, both in sequestering carbon and all the other benefits. So, as I said, there's a link down in the purple hip pill about it, and um, it's it's starting to gain some interest. I think um, if we can really work with farmland, you know, we're finding that we can, once we stop killing and use cover crops and all these sort of things, that we're really uh, benefiting in the carbon, but we're benefiting in many other ways too. So um, it has a lot of flexibility to the data that we're collecting. And it also really benefits the farmer too, because they get in really valuable information on how they're doing and what they could do to even make things better. So I'll land it there. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the info, Ed. So I think we're arriving at the end. Thank you very much, everybody, for being here today with us. Um, don't hesitate to put any question that you may have on our Twitter. We'll answer. Um, and looking forward to the next Twitter spaces. Um, we will keep you posted on our Twitter. And have a very good day, everybody.